Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Let's hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Our text for this morning is Romans 5, verses 10 to 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We eat it, and we find that it tastes sweeter than honey. And we pray today that we will believe what you say, and that you will change us so that we are more and more resembling our Savior, Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our text for this morning, and as is always the case, it has a context, surrounding text, and I want to read to you uh, what comes immediately prior to our text, because when you have the word for, the word for is based on what came before. And so, son, you're going to go to your room for you were just disobedient. Okay, it's pointing back. And this word for if is pointing to what came before. And this is what came before in the two verses before, verses 8 and 9 of Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, as I read that, you should be thinking to yourself, that's almost exactly what he just read. And you're right. The parallels are constant, so much so that you could just look at this and say, well, he's, just, he's, he's repeating himself. Well, this is what the Apostle Paul does all the time. It's not accidental, all right? So he's repeating himself. Now, what are the parallels? Well, the first parallel is while we were yet sinners, and then while we were enemies. Do you see that? The first two verses, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, the second two verses. Second, justified is in the previous two verses, and reconciled are in the verses here. And so those two words are parallels. They're not the same exactly in meaning, but they have a lot of the same significance. And then third, it says by his blood, speaking of the blood of Jesus, and that's paralleled in the statement through the death of his son. And so you've got a preposition in both cases, by and through, And both of them are talking about the death of Jesus. One is very concrete in speaking of blood. The other is more general just in speaking about his death. By the blood of God's Son and by the blood and by the death of God's Son. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, who were God's enemies? Who are the enemies of God? The enemies were you. The enemies are us. 
we are the enemies. Every person who is a Christian, who has faith in Jesus Christ, was an enemy of God. And it was while he was an enemy that God saved him. It wasn't because he stopped being an enemy that God looked on, on him with favor. It was while he was an enemy. It's what it says. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. Now, how is it that somebody is reconciled while he's an enemy? I mean, generally, that's not the way it works. Generally, the husband has to back down and say he's sorry after his wife cries before she stops being angry. But God stops being angry. He's reconciled to us, what? While we're his enemies. The work of Christ was accomplished for you, if you're a believer, while you were an enemy. The believer was in desperate straits when the Son of God died for him. He was a sinner and an enemy of God. Now, if you today are not a believer, if you're a worldling, somebody who's all of this world and not of heaven, you are in desperate straits if you do not believe because you are a sinner and because you're a sinner, you are an enemy of God. Now, I will admit to you that I have a lot of trouble with this truth. It's biblical. I fully acknowledge that this is what Scripture says over and over and over again, and I will admit to you that I don't like it, and I, I, I would prefer not to believe it. Why is that? Why am I opposed to believing that God saves us when we're enemies? Well, it's because I don't want to have to think about the condition of those who are outside of Christ. You know, I don't want to think of them as enemies because in many ways they're so much nicer than I am. I don't want to think they're enemies because I don't want to have the burden of witnessing to my own relatives, let alone my neighbors, let alone the people that are in the office for marriage counseling, you know? I don't want to wear the weight of eternity. I would prefer to just simply observe the lightness of being, the unbearable lightness of being. And so what we all do is we all deny the weight of eternity. And we just live in lightness. Triviality, superficiality, the banal. We're just all caught up in movies and football games. And, you know, you can, you can enjoy a football game as much with a, an unbeliever, a worldling, as you can with a Christian. As a matter of fact, often more, <laughs> you know, because generally Christians are going to suppress their real feelings, you know, because they've got to have an image, you know, whereas unbelievers will be happy and sad, <laughs> which is what it takes to enjoy a football game. One of the things that is most destructive to our children is when they have Christian mother and Christian father, and the Christian mother and father try to communicate the lightness of being instead of the heaviness of being. And on the one hand, I said earlier, don't make a production out of it, just pray, right? Okay. But on the other hand, when it comes to their disobedience and their rebellion and their lying, this is enmity against God. This is not just childishness. It's not trivial. It is a part of the fall of Adam resident in the heart of your little child. 
And it is a wicked thing. And you as a father should face the fact that your child is an enemy of God. Give them the dignity of their rebellion. But of course, fathers don't want to wear the dignity of their fatherhood, and so they want to deny the dignity of their their child's rebellion. And so it's just childishness, or he meant well, or, well, you know, I don't really know what his motives were. Maybe he was really being self-denying when he was rebelling because, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I can't stand to watch parents deny our rebellion against God and the rebellion of their children by incessantly examining the motives of their child when their child has disobeyed them. It is so destructive to children for you to raise them, always trying to figure out what their motives were for rebelling. You know, God's not in heaven trying to figure out our motives for rebellion. He knows our motives. Our motives are that we are the enemy of God. And listen, you've got to get this into your mind. I told you that I want to think of rebellion as being lighter than it is. I've told you I don't want to think of every man, every woman who is not in Christ being an enemy of God. I don't want to think that way. But that's what the Bible says. And the only difference between people in this world are there are those who, while they were enemies, were reconciled to God, and there are those who remain his enemies yet. That's it. And if you don't get this into your mind, you're never going to be an agent of reconciliation because you're going to run around to everybody and say that people are generally alike and all paths lead to heaven and, and, you know, I'm not anything special and you don't have to worry. I'm not going to be a sectarian, you know. I'm, I, I'm going to be uniting in my spirituality. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be a peacemaker with my spirituality. And so guess what? You will never make peace. Because the only person that makes peace is the person that sees the horror of sin, the reality of rebellion against God, of being God's enemy, and then explains the path of peace, which is Jesus Christ. And so another way of saying this is, anybody who refuses to recognize the enmity against God, which is the central fact of human existence, is someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. No one ever comes to Jesus Christ because they have little thoughts about their enmity against God. Does this make sense to you? Think of yourself when you witness to people and assume that they're every bit as evil as you are. And that's actually compassion. (laughs) You know, assume that they're as hard-headed and rebellious and hostile to God as you were. <laughs> and then, then you will have faith to be an agent of reconciliation. Now, I know it's counterintuitive, because you're sitting there thinking, no, then I'm going to go around telling everybody how awful they are. Well, that's true in one sense. You will, you will do that. But you will begin by talking about yourself and your own hostility to God. And it will be evident to everybody that watches you that you know how hostile to God you are and what a sinner you are. And that kind of witness of Christians is never perceived as being what? It's never perceived as being political. 
The way you know whether or not you are fully aware of your enmity against God as you witness to others is just listen to whether they accuse you of making political statements. And the minute they do that, you know that what really you're communicating is your moral superiority to other people in the world. Okay? And the world doesn't need people that are morally superior. It had one, and he accomplished the work. And that was Jesus. We are not in this world to establish our moral superiority. We are in this world to be agents of reconciliation between those who, like us, are enemies against God. That's it. That's as high as you're going to rise. So you know that our pastors and elders and the older women of this church watch you, right? You know that farmers watch their cows, their sheep, their goats. And you know a shepherd watches the sheep. And one of the things that... that, that blah, grieves me that's kind, of, that's kind of a pathetic word. I'm grieved. I mean, that's not a strong statement. It's kind of pathetic, but okay. One of the things that grieves me is wives who are always expressing their concern about the condition of the soul of their husbands in a way that makes their husband feel morally and spiritually inferior. I can't stand that. And almost always, the reason that wife has that attitude to that husband is not because he's, <laughs> he doesn't know the grace of God. Almost always, it's because he sins in a manly way. And, you know, no woman ever fully approves of, of men. And so often it's just that, you know, he, he makes certain noises with his body at inappropriate times. But there's a certain spiritual attribute to that noise his body makes that indicates to her that he doesn't know Jesus. And if she doesn't right, come right out and say it, her always withholding from her husband her approval in front of the children fully communicates to the children that it's a spiritual condition, him making noises from his body because it's the fabric of all her disapproval of her husband. Huh? Huh? Are you with me? Listen, I don't care whether it's in our marriage. I look at you children and I think, okay, you've got relationships with siblings and some siblings are just bad. Every home has a bad sibling, right? We, we know this, right? I was the baddie, okay? We know who the baddie is, Taylor. Taylor was the baddie, okay? And, and isn't it nice that they're here today? I'm so happy. Yeah. And those baddies have the morally superior members of the family always reminding them they're the baddie, right? This was true with Taylor. Oh, trust me. 
It was true with you. <laughs> yeah, amen, says his brother-in-law. Okay. How helpful is it to your brothers and sisters for you to point out to them that they're bad? It doesn't work, does it? Why doesn't it work? Well, because that message is always about how you're good. What you have to do is you have to explain that you're bad to your brother and sister who's bad so that they will see that it's an act of God. And it's not your self-control. It's not, I mean, I'm not denigrating self-control. Self-control is good. And if you don't know what denigrating means, go home and look it up, okay? Don't be superior to your younger brothers and sisters. Don't do it. Love them. Help them to understand that you know your need of Jesus washing you, okay? And so listen, again and again and again, I want to say to you, we must not pass over this statement that recurs again and again, which is, while we were enemies. If you misdiagnose the condition, you will never have a proper plan, a proper therapy for health. We cannot bypass the enmity against God, which is the condition of every man. As a matter of fact, in preparing to preach this morning, do you know who's been very much in my mind as I prepare? Lexi. Lexi. She is, where is Lexi? Is she in here right now? Where is she? Okay, so she's been walking out, but she's often walking across the back. Lexi is, is very seriously handicapped. Do you think that Lexi has enmity against God? Listen, I'd be here to tell you, Lexi has enmity against God. Have you ever seen her rebel against her parents? She does it. She does it. She gets angry against Caleb and Linda. And Caleb and Linda are very patient with her. She'll throw herself down. Now, is this just pain? Or is this enmity against God? In other words, I'm asking you, is Lexi created in the image of God? And is Lexi inherited the sin of Adam? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if there's anybody we would like to deny the truth of this enmity against God, it would be unborn children in the womb, newborn infants, severely handicapped people. And, you know, we say, well, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't beat up on somebody, you know. You know. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, it's a helicopter. I thought something was... Um, but listen, uh, when, when Mary Lee and I were growing up, there was this wonderful family in our church, and they had a Down syndrome son. And one of the adult Sunday school classes that we'd go to occasionally, this Down syndrome son would greet us in the doorway. And it was always a joy to come to covenant class because Kenny, Kenny Hansen was there. And he was probably 40 at the time, but he'd greet you with his cherubic smile, warmly welcome you, hand you a hymnal, and your day was already off to a good start because Kenny was there. It was such a sweet thing. 
Many years later, I was uh, out visiting Kenny's parents. They still lived with their son. They were in their probably late 70s, and he was in his 50s, maybe 60s. They may have been in their 80s. And I was talking to his mother, Jean, who's the sweetest woman I've ever known. And Jean said that she had um, recently been noticing that Kenny was having bad days and was just nasty, just nasty. And she said one day she was combing Kenny's hair, and Kenny, looking in the mirror, said, Kenny's been bad. And that was such a blessing to her to know. What? Well, that her son realized he was a moral agent and that he had been bad. So when we give communion to Abram, I mean, not to Abram, (laughs) to Caleb and Linda, and Lexi is standing there, and we pray for your children. What do we pray for for Lexi? Well, you pray for Lexi the same thing you pray for your children. You pray that God will help her what? Know her sin and hate it and love her Savior. Listen, if God can set apart children in the womb to belong to him, God can set apart Lexi. Okay? So I want you to fully acknowledge that when the Bible talks about us who are believers being reconciled while we are God's enemies, God does not need us running around telling everybody that they're not really enemies of God, but they just don't know how to be a Christian. You know? No, 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 no. And if you want to keep them from thinking you're making a political statement, just make sure that they know your sin. And then tell them that they're sinners too, and that God has made a path of reconciliation. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now, this is another thing, reconcile. Who's reconciled to whom? Well, it says here, reconciled to God. Who's reconciled to God? Well, the one who was an enemy. Well, who's an enemy? Well, me, right? And so what we see here is that we are reconciled to God. Now, does that mean that we stop being God's enemies, or does that mean that God stops being our enemy? Which is it? Reconciliation, is it both sides, or is it one? Is it a one-sided thing? Well, when I was preparing to preach, I wrote that it was two-sided, and I wrote about how we stop being God's enemy, and God stops being our enemy. And then I read uh, um, John Murray, a professor of theology at, uh, at Westminster, a guy I love. If you've never read John Murray, read him. There's all kinds of helpful things. He's one of the most uh, uh, bony, hard, helpful writers that you can read. He's bony. And his bones stick you, and you grow in a way that when you read Burkoff, it's like bleh, 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 bleh. It's like eating the Sahara Desert reading Burkoff. But Murray, I'm trying to get you guys to want to read Murray. I hope I'm doing a good job. But it has to be men. Women will maybe not like him so much, especially when I tell you he was a chain smoker and his fingers were yellow from his cigarettes. There, now no women will want to read them, you know. <laughs> That's a bad example for my husband. Okay, all right. 
Murray is talking about this, and Murray corrected me in a bony sort of way. (laughs) And he said to me, not to me, but, you know, through the book, he said, you know, this is not a two-sided reconciliation. This is a unilateral reconciliation. You are not reconciled to God. You don't start, stop being his enemy. He is reconciled to you. And then he uses a word over and over and over and over and over. Okay? And the word is forensic. Now, what is forensic medicine? Yeah, it's, it's examining something and then generally testifying in a court. So forensic has to do with the court of law. So what is Murray's point? Well, Murray's point is that when it comes to reconciliation, God reconciles us, himself to us. Okay? It's not talking about you being reconciled to God. That doesn't really matter. Do you get this? When your mother says, you better watch out for when your father gets home, you know, nobody's worried about whether you're reconciled to your father when he gets home. The real question is, how is your father going to reconcile you to him? (laughs) Right? Right? And what Murray is pointing out is that every act of God that makes us no longer subject to his wrath is a unilateral action. It is not bilateral. And so I went back to my sermon and I deleted a whole bunch of text. Text I thought was helpful. But I'd run into the bony truths of Scripture. And it's not really talking at all about my reconciling myself to God because it's talking about while I was an enemy and it's saying I was reconciled to God. So I had not stopped being an enemy when I was reconciled to God. Do you see this? Now, what application does this have to us? Well, the application it has is there is no way to prep somebody for salvation. Because nobody has ever been saved who's been prepped for salvation. Because if somebody was really prepped for salvation, what would be true? Well, they would finally be reconciled to God, and then God would say, well, he's reconciled, I guess I'll be. You know, it's like a marital fight. You know, you're having a fight, right? And both of you are absolutely certain that you're right. No reconciliation, just anger and hostility and argument or silence, depending on how you fight. And then... The woman, she cries. And all of a sudden, the man's heart melts, and he says, Honey, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't be that. Meaning being a man, okay? And and at that precise moment, what happens with the woman? The woman says to herself, well, he's admitted he's wrong, so now I'll be reconciled to him. But the problem is she hasn't admitted she's wrong. Because crying is never an admission that you're wrong. Any of you notice this in marital fights? A woman can cry and be absolutely committed to the purity of everything she's ever done and been. Now, I'm teasing you a little bit, okay? Okay, you women, you're laughing, right? Okay. 
Okay. In other words, how often in your marriage fights do you reconcile when both of you instantaneously at the same moment realize you're wrong? No. In every marriage, there is always one side of the equation who specializes in admitting they're wrong. Huh? 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 Come on, be honest about your marriages. And then the other person moves because they have seen weakness. Or they have seen what they knew all along, which was that person's always wrong. And typically it's the man. It is the the privilege of the man to lead in confessing his sin, I think, in marriage. Now, what's my point in saying this? Well, I want to get you to admit that almost never is there such a thing as an immediate and mutual reconciliation of two enemies. It just doesn't happen. Generally, one person wins, and the other person says, Uncle. Why do we think it's different with us and God? Huh? Why do we all of a sudden, when it comes to Christian faith, think that there's just this spark of, 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 of humility in a person, and God sees the spark, and God reaches out a little bit, and then the person has a little more humility, and God reaches out a little more, and, and it's called synergy. There's no synergy in God being reconciled to a sinner. Why? Well, because the reconciliation happens when? Come on, when? Wow, you are his enemy. Now, is this depressing to you? It shouldn't be depressing. It should be the greatest news you've ever heard that God reconciles his enemies. And what I always want to say to you about this specific issue is that would you please simply have the same faith for other people you had yourself? Every one of us is going to confess that we were God's enemies when he reached down and grabbed us. None of us thought, well, you know, I, was, I did well for, for three seconds. <laughs> you know? I mean, how long do you think you were good before God reached down and reconciled himself to you? You know, three minutes, maybe three hours, maybe three days? Well, if there were three days, you were probably in solitary confinement in a prison. I find that as soon as I open up the garage door, something in me, I don't know what it is, but just getting in my car and driving out of my garage, all of a sudden the sins seem to multiply. Listen, all we have to do is see how God worked in our life and have faith for other people that he'll work in their lives the same way he works in ours. You were a piece of work and I was a worse one. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. God reconciled himself to us. It was not bilateral, it was unilateral. And that's a precious truth. Because it means it's all of God. (laughs) Right? And so, okay, here's a question. So, uh, if you don't want it to be all of God, what do you think you have to contribute? 
I mean, honestly. You can pull the wool over your husband's or your wife's eyes. But in the presence of God, when you stand before him, and he says, why should I allow you into my holy presence? What are you going to say? I went to law school, did well. Nothing in my hands I bring, what? Simply, simply to the cross I cling. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And we all know what this means, right? We know that Jesus bore our sins on the cross. We did not bear our own sins. It, was, it required the death. And you remember the parallel construction is the blood of Christ. The death of Christ, the blood of Christ. And that again is what? Forensic. It is completed at a point in time. The blood of Christ washes us objectively. It is so scandalous that the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we all want to spiritualize that. Well, you know, there's something, you know, sort of like Dawnish, you know, like the detergent, you know. It's like really good Dawn, and it just cleans us, you know. No, it's blood. Blood is life. And it was literally the blood of Jesus that washed us, literally. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the reason the Old Testament is a riot of blood. The Old Testament is filled with blood. And every bit of it points forward to the blood of Jesus Christ. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Ephesians 1, 6 to 8, in him we have redemption, what? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. There was a notorious Sunday here where we were studying this, and (laughs) I just all of a sudden thought of the wine on the Lord's table in front of us, and Adam was very willing for me to throw it at him. But then it seemed like that would be sacrilegious. And I'm not sure, maybe it would have been, maybe it wouldn't have been. But if you were under the cross of Jesus, would you have the faith to walk to him and to stand under his blood? I think that many of us, knowing what we know from Romans, if we were under the cross, would be like Peter. You know, remember where he objects to Jesus washing his feet? Remember that? And Jesus says, if you don't allow me to wash you, you have no part in me. Remember what Peter says? Then he says, well, then just wash all of me. You know? I think that's a beautiful statement of how literal and and, uh, fleshly and bloodly our faith is. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And then we read on and it says, verse 11, And not only this, 
But we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's very interesting that if you look at verse 8 and 9, it says much more than in verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Okay, you have that in your mind. Let me read it again. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then verse 11, and not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, both of them are pointing to the past and then to the future. And they're making a much more than argument, okay? There's an even a stronger case. Well, when I was reading this and I, I read, not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I had this feeling that what was being said here was that there was something more that needed to be added to justification. And not only this, but we also. Well, what does that language make you think? Well, whatever this was was good, <laughs> but we need the also, right? But we also, okay, we also exalt in God through, our, through whom we have now... In other words, okay, we got justification, we have reconciliation, but we also need what? We also need to receive the reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ in the future. That there is something that is past and there is something that is future. And that we must press on if we are going to receive the forgiveness of sins. And so we look back at verse 9, and verse 9 says this, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So again, the past justified by his blood, the future shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Past not only this, the blood of Christ reconciling us to God, but also now pressing on to the future through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And this points to one of the most common mistakes in the evangelical church today, which is that people get mixed up justification and sanctification. And so they think, well, you know, uh, what we have to do is we have to keep doing good works in order to be saved. And so we have to press on. We have not received salvation, but we're receiving salvation. Now, there is some truth to the fact that Scripture does speak that way at times. But listen, why is it that we should be rejoicing today? Is it because we will be found to have grown in holiness when we stand before the judgment seat of God? No, the reason we exalt is because we have now, past tense, received reconciliation. And we exalt because Jesus Christ lives today. And so we know that we also shall live. You remember that Jesus said, because I live, you also shall live. And so there is an aspect to our salvation which is 
complete. And there is an aspect to our salvation which is being completed. But the complete part, the forensic part, the objective part of the first service, I kept referring it to it as the Purdue part. Because when it comes to my salvation, I want Purdue doing it. I don't want Bloomington doing it. Are you? You understand? Because Bloomington, it would be about how you feel. But with Purdue, it's about truth. You know, when, when you walk on a bridge, trust me, you don't want anybody from IU making that bridge. You know what I'm saying? You want Purdue to make the bridge. Okay. Well, that's how certain and dependable the completed work of Jesus is in our lives. Nevertheless, we also exalt. Nevertheless, we press on. Nevertheless, we complete the good works that God has saved us for and to. Nevertheless, we persevere. The Christian is not content simply to say that when he was God's enemy, he was saved. The Christian wants to speak about the growth of holiness in his life. And he must speak of it because that is what God has saved us to, to growing in conformity to Jesus Christ. It would be such a, such a stupid thing for God to save us so that we could continue to be as unlike Jesus as we already are. Now, we want to grow. We want to grow like Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus. And so this exaltation, he says, we exalt. Did you see that? We also exalt in God. This exaltation is to be present tense and is to continue. Uh, you remember I was telling you about how angular John Murray is? Well, I got to read you a quote from his commentary because, you know, reform guys generally are, are sort of dour, you know, They're, they, they, they think it's godly not to smile and certainly not to tell jokes, you know, and they'll see the they'll see the negative part of everything. You know what I'm saying? And so John Murray on this text, this is a direct quote. This is what he says, quote, are you ready? It appears necessary to regard the exultant rejoicing referred to as rejoicing in the present, unquote. <laughs> I mean, I had to, I had to, I had to read that one to you. It's just priceless. It appears necessary for us to admit that this rejoicing should be in the present. <laughs> yeah, we're sorry about that, John. You know? What place does exaltation and joy have in, in your spiritual life? I mean, honestly. Would people characterize you as somebody who exalts in Jesus Christ and the joy of the Lord? Um, in our first service, we had a Reformed Presbyterian daughter. And so I started singing, right? And you all know what I sang, right? 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, I mean, it's the stupidest song on the face of the earth. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice, rejoice. And again, I say, yeah, you did say it already. And again, I say, rejoice, rejoice, re rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. There's an even stupider one. And it's, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You all know that one? And then you go, <laughs> It's so sad that Reformed Presbyterians can't sing them. I mean, they can sing them outside a church. But I mean, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's pure scripture. Now, I'm tweaking Reformed Presbyterians. They have very serious reasons why they reserve worship for psalms. But think about this. How sophisticated is the Apostle Paul when he talks about us exalting in the Lord, and when he says rejoice in the Lord again, I say rejoice. How serious a theological statement is that? And I'm going to tell you, it is serious as death. When you're at a grave of a little child, that is the time to rejoice. Why? Because Jesus has done the work. You are not called to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. What you're called to do is to exalt and to rejoice. And let me tell you something, the heavier the weight, the more awful the pain, the more necessary it is for you to exalt and to rejoice. There is no antidote for grief and depression other than rejoicing. Okay? You can't just say to yourself, self, don't be depressed. Any of you tried it? Does it work? It doesn't work. But when you think of the work of Jesus Christ, where he bore his, the sins, your sins, on the cross, how could we not rejoice? And listen, I think that that little stupid chorus that's so repetitious is deep theology and should be repeated over and over and over again. And that's why when I ran cross-country, it was those songs that I ran to. Everybody paces themselves with something. One last thing, an application, and that is you be very careful what music you sing and what music you listen to. I don't think any of you take music seriously enough. As I was writing this sermon, um, you know how helpful it was to me that I'm constantly, constantly listening to My Soul Among Lions? I mean, I constantly listen to it. And so, as I was writing this sermon, what strengthened me was God is angry with the wicked every day. So, tune your music to strengthen your doctrine, to strengthen your faith. Okay? Listen to the Psalms. Now see, how can the RPs be upset with me? Listen to the Psalms, and they will inoculate you against depression and unbelief. They will inoculate you against pride. 
they will give you a soft and pliable heart because it, it will be all about God. But not just God, God, but what? Well, look at the text. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. God and Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that this week we will not take the edge off of enmity against God of little children and older people, the dying, the living, the rich, the poor. We pray also, Lord, that you will be pleased to have us worship you in our thoughts and the songs on our lips, that we will exalt in the reconciliation that has been given to us through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.